And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. For the third time, Jesus tells his disciples that they're headed to Jerusalem and he is going to die. And this time is the most most graphic, the most explicit of the times that he tells them. And uh, I'll let you know up front, I'm using John MacArthur's outline for this sermon. Uh, He breaks this passage down into five considerations of suffering. We're going to see the plan for suffering, the predictions of the suffering, the proportions of the suffering, and power over suffering, and then lastly, the perception of suffering. So before we get started, then uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come today just as your children to say thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for uh, the gift of your son Jesus, and that in him, in his name, we have eternal life. So we give you praise and glory for that. And Father, as we're considering now the crucifixion and just what that means and how important it is, pray that you would just take the scales off of our eyes and the, the hardness of our hearts away so that we can see and understand this truth about the crucifixion and that it really was your plan from the beginning. So just speak to our hearts as you desire this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first thing I want you to see is the plan for suffering. Many today look at the cross and say, surely this wasn't God's plan A. Right? Talk about plan A. That's what you want to do first. That his son should die on the cruel death on a Roman cross. Uh, Certainly, God must have adapted or changed his original plan, and the cross was merely the result of wicked men. Uh, But the truth is, the cross is at the very center of the coming of Jesus. It's the culmination of all redemptive history. It's not only plan A, it's the only plan. Now, here we see Jesus taking the twelve, the twelve disciples, aside and confiding in them, letting them know once again that he is headed to Jerusalem to die. This part of the journey began for Jesus several months earlier in chapter 9 and verse 51 of Luke where he told the disciples then, or Luke tells us, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He would not be deterred. Uh, He's walking right into his very own death. Now, Jesus tells the the twelve that the plan is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. It's no mere accident. It all began back in chapter 3 of Genesis. Think back with me. After the fall, God promised that Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Well, who's the seed of the woman? We know it's Jesus. That bruising is the cross. So the cross goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Just a few verses later, God sheds the blood of an innocent animal to cover Adam and Eve. And what are we learning there? Well, that sin and guilt are only covered by sacrifice. The death of a sacrifice, and it has to be an innocent sacrifice. And then chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God, right? And Abel brings an animal as a sacrifice, and Cain brings the fruit of the ground, some produce from the ground. God accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain's. Now, what do we learn there? Well, that only a blood sacrifice is acceptable to God. Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Then in chapter 22, just fast forward a few chapters, and we see uh, uh, Abraham bringing Isaac, his son, to Mount Moriah to, to sacrifice him there. And 
literally right as he is fixing to sacrifice Isaac, an angel uh, says, whoa, whoa, hold it right there. And there's a, a ram in the thicket, remember? And they grab the ram and, and Abraham uses that. And, and what do we learn there? That God himself provides the acceptable sacrifice. Now we go all the way forward to the Passover. This is several hundred years later. And once again, we see that the only way to escape judgment is through sacrifice. The sacrifice of a substitute. A sinless, spotless, blameless substitute. About three months after the Passover, uh, the Jews arrive at Mount Sinai and God gives them the law. Now, part of the law, a major part of the law, in fact, was a complex system of sacrifice. Every national feast, every act of worship, every approach to God, every single day of every single year was possible only through sacrifice. So as you think about the cross, you have to go back to the meaning of sacrifice as it's revealed progressively in the Old Testament. Now Jesus knows this, and Jesus knows the Old Testament, does he not? In Luke 24, this is after he is raised from the dead, he says to a couple of his disciples, how is it that you don't know what the Old Testament says that I must suffer? Now that suffering was foretold in the Old Testament, and that's what, that's what Jesus was talking about. How could you, you know, read the Old Testament and not know that I must suffer? Remember Psalm 22? Verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the very words of Jesus on the cross. Later in that same chapter, beginning of verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water. Think about Jesus on the cross as I read this. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. You know what that's a reference to? You know how they finished people off who hadn't died yet? They took basically a, a large sledgehammer and crushed their knees so they could no longer support themselves and they would asphyxiate. They didn't break a single bone. The psalmist saw that. I can count all my bones, not a one is broken. They, they stare and gloat, it, gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my, for my clothing, they cast lots. That's pretty amazing details for a thousand years in advance. Well, Isaiah 50 is one of my, 53, excuse me, is one of my favorite Old Testament passages because it so clearly depicts the suffering servant. Now, the suffering servant is what Israel missed in the time of Jesus. They were looking for the conquering messianic king. And he will come again. Revelation 19 verse 11 tells us all about that. He is coming again. But they missed the suffering servant. This was written 700 years before the time of Jesus. It speaks to God's sovereignty uh, in, in fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53 in his son, Jesus. I want you to listen as I read Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That means he's going to die. Okay, out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the um, stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Do you remember on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He's interceding for the people who are killing him. Unbelievable. Again, amazing detail that we see in the life of Jesus coming from Isaiah 53. So, the death of Christ, again, it's no mis miscalculation. It's not a good plan gone bad. It's the fulfillment of all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man. Uh, they are to be absolutely and perfectly accomplished. The New Testament testimony bears this out. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching what is the first sermon of the Christian era. And in verse 23, here's what he says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of godless men. Two chapters later, as part of a prayer, we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So from the very beginning, the cross was God's only plan, period. Well, second, we see the productions of, uh, uh, predictions of, of suffering. Verse 32 and 33, For he will be delivered over the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
So what's the sequence? Well, Jesus is going to be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, condemned to death in a mock trial, and then handed over to the Gentiles to be exalted, and then on the third day, rise again. Mocked, spit on, scourged, killed, risen from the dead. Again, amazing detail that was perfectly fulfilled. Now, this points to the deity of Jesus and his omniscience. He knows exactly what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. This is all the work of God as the primary cause, providentially moving the hands of godless men in the decision of the Jews to the execution of his son. Don't ever think for one second that Jesus came into the world to offer a kingdom to Israel without a cross. And that somehow, because of their rejection, he had to now go die on the cross. He never offered a kingdom without a cross. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He came to offer a kingdom through the cross. Well, number three, we have the proportions of suffering. Uh, Back at... uh, uh, Good Friday. Uh, Part of my sermon that night was just looking at four different ways that Jesus suffered. We're going to cover a little bit more this morning. Um, When we consider the cross, we really have to consider just the massive nature of the suffering. In Isaiah 53 that I read just a minute ago, uh, the Messiah is called the man of sorrows, plural. And when referring to the suffering of Christ, it's often in the plural. 2 Corinthians 1.5 mentions the sufferings of Christ, plural. Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings, plural. And the glory, uh, 1 Peter 1.11, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, plural. 1 Peter 4.13 and 1 Peter 5.1 both speak of Christ's suffering in the plural. In, in Luke 24, 26, it tells us that Christ suffered these things, plural. In Hebrews 2.10, Jesus, the captain of our salvation, was made perfect through sufferings, plural. So there's just an absolute breadth of suffering that needs to be looked at. And there are various ways that Jesus suffered. First, he suffered uh, the suffering of disloyalty. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus predicted the betrayal of Judas during the the Passover uh, in the upper room. Now, from a a human standpoint, is there any greater pain than to be betrayed by the person who is closest to you? The one who sits beside you, the one who walks by you day after day. It's an ugly sin, maybe the ugliest sin of all. You put someone in an intimate position. You invest them with privilege and honor and affection and, and responsibility. And behind the scenes, they sell you out. That is the suffering of disloyalty. Well, second, we have the suffering of rejection. Jesus was delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Now, they constitute the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body there in Israel in Jesus' day. They made the decisions for the nation. Well, their decision concerning Jesus was to reject him. They put him on trial. They trumped up false charges. Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by men. In Psalm 118, David says that he is the stone that the builders rejected. John tells us that he came to his own and his own received him not. Even his own disciples at his trial, they deserted him. They, They rejected him. But there's even a more profound rejection than that of the nation and that of his disciples. That's the rejection of his own father. 
That's why on the cross Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has turned, had turned his back on his only begotten son. Well, number three is the suffering of humiliation. Humiliation is seen in verse 32. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. These things are designed to belittle, to demean, to humiliate. The soldiers beat Jesus and mocked him several different times. The most demeaning thing you can do is, uh, to someone is to spit on them. And they spat on the king of glory. That's humiliation. Well, number four is the suffering of pain. And I'm not talking about physical pain here. The disloyalty, the rejection, the humiliation, they all came together in severe pain. Think about it. The most significant, glorious, wondrous, perfect, holy person who has ever walked in this world was spit on, mocked, ridiculed, belittled, embarrassed, and humiliated. John, the apostle, calls it reviling. Peter tells us that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted his soul to the one who judges righteously. Well, number five is the suffering of injustice. Imagine it. You're God, and you're being accused of sin and sedition and insurrection and blasphemy all at the same time. And it's not true. None of it is true. You're in a legal trial, although it's a sham of a trial. You've got all these accusations that are being hurled at you, and you say absolutely nothing. This is what Isaiah was saying in chapter 53 there. You're like a sheep that is dumb, that is silent before its shearers. Jesus was a silent sheep led to slaughter in the greatest act of injustice from a human standpoint ever enacted to achieve the greatest act of justice from a divine standpoint ever accomplished. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The sinless Son of God was convicted in our place. You remember what we talked about earlier? Substitute. He was in our place. Well, number five, we kind of understand this, the suffering of injury. Scourged, ultimately killed. His scourging we're familiar with because we understand the history of scourging. Uh, we know what it was. They made a whip out of leather. It had several thongs, and on the end of each... Uh, thong was embedded uh, bits of glass, bone, metal, rock, various things. They were used to lacerate, to rip, to tear, to shred down to the veins. The body was hanging suspended on a pole so that the body would be taut, skin would be taut. The lashes continued until his entrails, until his organs would appear. Many people died from the scourging alone. Is it any wonder that Simon had to carry his cross? They put a crown of thorns in his head and embedded them. That's more injury. They nailed him to the cross, hands and feet. That's more excruciating pain and injury. Death by crucifixion, as we know, was a most horrible way to die. You basically died by asphyxiation or lack of oxygen when you could no longer push yourself up being suspended on your great wounds and catch your breath. One more writer, 
he writes this, Death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and the ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, the long continuance of torment, the horror of anticipation, the mortification of open wounds, breathlessness, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but stopping short of the point which would give this, uh, the, the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every moment painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The arteries, especially at the head and the stomach, became swollen, compressed with surcharged blood, while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing. There was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. All these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety. And all of this, and in all of this, you could not catch your breath. End quote. Add to that the weight and the burden of the soul that was being tortured by men, but also by God in his wrath against the sin of the world. When you do that, you see that the proportions of Christ's sufferings are staggering. He knew it all. He anticipated it all. And he said, this is where we're going. Well, number four, we have the power over suffering. This is verse 33. And the third day, he will rise again. Just that matter-of-factly, Jesus says the third day, he'll rise again. Now, he died uh, before the day ended on Friday, before the sun had set. And, and then on Sunday, he rose from the dead. He walked out of that grave, fulfilling Psalm 1610. The psalmist says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay, but will show him the path of life. He predicted this himself in John 2. You remember he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again? In John 12 he said, except a corn, a, a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. If it die, it brings forth life. And he did rise from the grave. Chapter 24 in Luke is the great record of Luke's gospel uh, of his resurrection. He knew he would die, and he knew on the third day he would rise again. And Scripture tells us that he did just that. And the evidence is massive for the resurrection. Now leads to our final observation, the perception of the suffering. How do the disciples to whom he is saying these things perceive it? Verse 34. And they understood none of these things. This was the saying. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now that's saying the same thing three ways. They understood none of these things. That's all you need to say. They didn't get it, and they continued not to get it. Now the critics say that that's why we know that Jesus didn't prophesy this stuff. If he had prophesied it, they would have. They wouldn't have been surprised when it happened. So somebody obviously went back and added it later to the manuscript and, and merely said that Jesus said it. But here's the real reason. Here's what's going on. The disciples had no category for what Jesus told them. Why? They were looking for a messianic king who was coming to set up his messianic kingdom. They had a highly developed messianic eschatology, in other words, in times, based on the Messiah coming. 
Death and crucifixion were in their eschatology. They expected a coronation, not a crucifixion. They expected a Messiah who killed his enemies, not one who was killed by his own people. They expected a triumphant Messiah, not a Messiah who was tortured. They expected a Messiah who brought life, not a Messiah who was dead. Paul sheds a little insight into this for us in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What that tells you is to the vast majority of the world, even today, the cross is foolishness. In Jesus' day, the idea of a Messiah uh, that was crucified was ridiculous to the Jews. The idea of a crucified God to the Gentiles was also ridiculous. They had a plethora of gods, little g's. And they had a well-crafted scheme of how the deities interacted with men. And the idea that God, a God, would come down and be killed by men was absolutely folly, foolishness to them. To the Jews, it was more than just, just folly. It was blasphemy. It was a stumbling block. It was a scandal. It was such a massive bearer, they couldn't get past it. So it simply didn't compute. He told them three times on their way. Just before in chapter 9, he tells them twice. And now here again in chapter 18. And it just kind of, you know, he told them and they just kind of went... They were clueless. It just right over their head. They don't understand it. It wasn't in their theology. It wasn't in their understanding, their interpretation of the Old Testament. But the fact is, it was true. And eventually, they came to understand it and came to believe it. How about you? Do you have a category for the Son of God coming into the world to die on a cross to bear your sins? to take your punishment, to receive the wrath of God against you uh, uh, in, instead of, or, excuse me, somebody to receive the wrath of God instead of you receiving that wrath. Do you have a category for that? The disciples didn't. Jesus is no victim in the crucifixion. He comes to die because of that because that is the divine plan. He's on schedule. He's on target. Several times he says, or the writers say about him, my hour is not yet come. Well, finally, he said, my hour has come. We're going to Jerusalem. We're on schedule. And I'm going to die. But I will rise three days later. Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Having accepted his sacrifice for sin. Are you willing to confess Jesus Christ as Lord? Only then can you be saved from sin, death, and hell. Jesus died. He rose again to provide salvation if you will simply repent and receive Him. Now let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the cross. Uh, Lord, that's why Jesus came, was to die, to be a sacrifice, a, a sufficient and spotless and blameless substitute on the behalf of all who would trust in Him. So God, this morning I ask that You would deal with us just as You need to, Father, to reveal sin. Draw us to Yourself as we, as we lift a high Jesus this morning. It's in His precious name that I pray. Amen.
Well, I just want to share something with you. It's called Three Circles. This is a, uh, it's a, it's a way to present the gospel, and there's an awful lot of truth in it. Uh, when we look out in the world, we see a lot of brokenness, don't we? Uh, we see a lot of death. We see a lot of uh, destruction, a lot of famine, uh, a lot of world revolt, uh, <laughs> country revolt. We see a lot of bad things, whether you look on FaceTube or TV, doesn't matter. Uh, probably someone has hit your life as well. The world just seems to be broken. But it's not, it's not all like that, is it? When's the last time you saw a beautiful sunset? Only God paints like that. Or how about the joy in a child's laughter? There's all kind of things where we see the presence of God in this world. But, and the truth is, God made this world perfect. It was a perfect design. But then as we talked about in Genesis 3, at the fall of man... Man decided to go his own way. We call that sin. And sin is, is what has resulted, or sin causes the result of brokenness. Now, in our brokenness, we try all kind of things to deal with that brokenness. Well, we can try to get famous. We can try to make more money. We can get a better job. <clears throat> Excuse me. A better education. We can chase this, chase that. We can numb ourselves with drugs, alcohol, illicit relationships, whatever it might be. We can look all over the place, but nothing will fit, fix that brokenness. But God decided from before the foundation of the world that he would not leave us in that situation. So he sent his son, Jesus. We call this the gospel. He sent him to the earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. And then 40 days after that, ascended where he is now to the right hand of the Father. The way that we come to Jesus is by really two things, turning and believing. Turning is simply repenting, moving away from our sin, totally doing away with our sin, right? Renouncing our sin and then believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and receiving Him, trusting Him. What that results in is a couple things. We grow uh, and we, we begin to look more like uh, Jesus. That's the ultimate goal is that we be conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't stop there because now, once we start heading towards and, and look at, you know, God's perfect design and, and, and looking more like Jesus, we have one more thing. And that is to go back out into the broken world and share with them the good news of Jesus. Maybe in looking at the crucifixion this morning from a different light, you realize that you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to encourage you this morning. Today is the day of salvation. When we have a song of invitation, if you're struggling with that, I want you to come and talk with me this morning. If you're a believer, uh, I know, like I said, this is a solemn passage. It's dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus and him going to die. But on the other side, he says, I will rise again three days later. Guess what? That's good news for us because he lives, we can live even today. So be encouraged in the crucifixion because three days later he rises from the grave that means that one day we will rise from our graves whether we die tomorrow or 50 years from now it doesn't matter one day when jesus comes again we will rise if we belong to him thank you for joining us for this podcast from first baptist church of crawfordville you can find more information and follow us on facebook or visit our website crawfordvillefbc.com